0: Just something I think everyone should know that if you are giving your animals electric shocks and you need to humidify your house, top tip, or put a moisturizer.
1: Well, the reason that I know that this is something that Ella was doing is because we have a shared Google calendar um, and every now and then Ella will put something in that shouldn't be in there and- (laughs) She keeps doing it. (laughs) There was one day where I was going through it and I just see the words in all caps, Moisturizer.
0: moisturizer. <laughs> I was going. I was. It was to moisturize, so I didn't hurt my cats.
1: Uh, so happy moisturizer day. Yeah. Happy moisturizer <laughs> to all who celebrate.
2: Yeah.
0: Hello and welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. My name's Ella and today we're going to be covering a science topic and a miscellaneous topic.
3: My name's Tom and I'm going to be doing today's science topic and in the first mixing of the topic in question, it's going to be a topic full of questions. It is electric animals, specifically the electric eel. Ooh. I'm going to be asking and answering all of the questions I will fully admit I had no idea about electricity and animals
0: Harking back to the first episode
1: Yeah Indeed My name is Caroline and this episode's miscellaneous topic is going to be the idea of women's work and early examples of craftivism. No way. Ooh, okay. Craftivism. We're going to introduce the word craftivism. We're not going to get into it too much because there is so much that can be said about it. Mm. But we're going
0: to talk about the rise of crafts
1: in activism. Hell yeah.
0: So I'm not doing a topic today. You may have noticed. I'm just here for moral support and to learn. <laughs> <laughs> No, well I want to be
3: also hold on. We should be crystal clear. You are not just here from moral Support. You do have to talk. No. You are here. <laughs> I'm
0: gonna be completely silent and just and, and just like <laughs> shaking my fists. <laughs> just giving thumbs up, like you're yes, doing great. If you didn't hear our QA episode, we discussed there that we are trying out a slightly new format where we've lost the middle question section, kind of merging it into the science topic. Which we have been kind of doing anyway. They were already quite similar. Yeah. But there's a a good number of reasons for this. Uh, One is because the episodes were getting too long... To avoid us burning out This gives one person An extra kind of Chunk of time Before they get Their science topic I've already started Next (gasps) episode Science topic Because of the Extra time This is afforded Which is excellent Wow This also means That the episodes Are shorter for Tom to edit So it's a lot less Stress on us But you're still Going to get a real Beefy episode Don't worry about that episode Oh yeah Rather than
3: Trying to make The topics shorter We were just like Let's just make Keep keep them beefy
0: but with that, I think let's dive on into the science topic.
3: Oh, it does feel good to be back. Oh, it's it has yeah, been a while. Yeah, it is. It's very yeah. really nice. So, this topic was actually inspired by a question we got a long, long time ago that I finally got around to.
1: Ooh. And I'll play
3: that question right now. Ooh.
1: Are we aware of any other animals that have an electrical <gasps> charge?
3: Yeah
0: uh fair yeah i pinned that video pinned on my uh twitter so I see it all the time. I, really, I was hoping
3: to surprise you guys, but it I'm, I'm, makes me happy that you guys remember that. I remember
0: it. Yeah, I literally <laughs> see it like a, every a couple of times a week. That's so funny. So that's <laughs> great.
3: So that's a clip from our very first episode where Ella brought in a question about the very small electric charge that bees can get, which made Caroline ask that question. Uh, and then in that clip, we laughed because that's like the obvious answer, uh-huh. right? It's like they're called electric eels. but it really did get me thinking, like, what the what the fuck is up with electric keels? <laughs> <laughs> What's
1: right? the deal, right? Because
3: not only do they have a charge like bees do, but they can zap and discharge electricity at will.
0: But it's not like where you see in the movies, right, where you, uh, someone is thrown into a pit of electric eels and they're, like, electrocuted And
3: then you see their skeleton.
0: And they've got,
1: like, the little zippy lines around them whilst they're yeah, being shot. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like
0: a is it more like a static electric charge that you might give but but stronger if i hold an eel will i go like that well
3: yeah like these questions are exactly what i'm talking about like the the extreme example of this that i found uh when i was just looking around i I found a question someone asked online and they went
1: are eels really electric i mean such a valid question yeah like so first
3: first of all the answer is yes but i i think it points to a very real kind of like disbelief that can come from not fully understanding something yeah Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. and, and like logically i can be like you know like oh we live in a sociological context where modern electronic devices can associate like the concept of electricity with the present and the future which makes some people confused by why eels can seemingly do that logically i can say that but in my bones I'm like two drinks away from being like, why did they put batteries in eels? <laughs> who, put, who did that? When did, when did they invent electric eels? But in researching this topic, I like finally started to change how I think about electric animals. Like I could feel my brain shifting because I, I, I didn't really know how they worked. Nope. <laughs> and I can make an educated guess, but like, because I found that whole...
0: Like, I know you just rub them really really hard <laughs> and you can stick them to the wall and, and they can and, make and and they build stand on up. end yeah that's right <laughs>
3: there's like there's like one person down the river who's getting shocked and then a person upstream who's just like got like cotton and is just like rubbing them <laughs> is like yeah, oh my yeah, god yeah. I'm gonna yeah. prank Jim
1: so bad <laughs> electric eels was something that I had in my head since I was a child of like the concept of eels being electric in the silly goofy little point. cartoons mm. it's like, so like unlearning like, yeah yeah you know like processing that is 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 a different way of going around it, right? Like, I'm learning this new piece of information for the first time, versus there's this preconceived notion I've had in my head since I was two, you know?
3: Totally, totally. And for me, one of the first steps to ironing out these misconceptions was to look at the past. And so I want to ask y'all, when do you think we discovered these electric fish and, like, first started taking note of them?
1: Man, because, like... There's a difference between discovering the fish and understanding that it's electricity that's making them do things, you know? Yes,
3: that was a purposefully weirdly phrased question because of that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because like... Also, I don't know how similar electric eels look to other species mm. of eel. Could we have seen these eels and just been like, man, some of these are real zappy and some of them aren't. And I don't yeah. know why, but we're going to put them all in the same bucket.
0: <laughs> I guess my question would be, where are they found? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would be like, I think that would affect when we discovered them and discovered is like in air quotes here because of course, yeah. of course. people who live near them probably have known about them for Millennia For or whatever, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But then it's then. When did white colonists or whatever discover them as a different, um, of course, kind of answer?
1: I don't know, man. Was it something silly like ancient Egypt? Is there a hieroglyph of just like an eel with like a little a little electric bolt <laughs> around it? You know, and see. <laughs> it's interesting because you're right and you're wrong oh fantastic
3: but to phrase the question with less ambiguity when do you think is the earliest written record of, of uh, these yeah, that yeah, i'm going to yeah. be pulling out to share with you guys
0: maybe something like the 171800s. there seem to be a lot of people going around looking for strange animals around that time
1: yeah and it feels like around that time like i know in the uk and london like people eating things like jellied eels was a real mm. a real thing that we did for some reason. Mm. It was a time of um, oddities. Yeah. I also wonder if the earliest written record of something like this isn't necessarily highlighting that it's an electric eel, but more like mm. saying it's
0: something that... I doth put my foot into the yeah. water and I doth get a slight tingling sensation in my toe. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You
3: guys are... <laughs> so I will say... And again, I know this isn't true. In my mind, it feels like we discovered electricity first, and then discovered fish could do this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. Are you saying that we that the discovery was before the advent of using electricity? So people didn't know what the eel was doing? Because if so, that's cool as fuck. Uh huh.
3: Ella, you are one hundred percent right. It's
0: like magic. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, like we're gonna get into. The, yeah, you're gonna love this. So, uh, of course, the answer is way before we discovered electricity, back to at least as far back as ancient Egypt and Yay! Greece. But then the question is, and I, this is the most like Quora asked sounding question, but I love it. What did we call electric eels before
0: electricity? Oh,
1: <laughs> oh. The tingly eels, the, the oh. shocking eels. What was the... okay? Actually,
0: I have a theory. Okay, this is like yeah, this is yeah, really yeah. logicking it out. But what is like the Greek yeah. or Latin for? lightning you know you know it's all like static
3: so i think what you're trying to get at is from the superseded theories episode i talked about how Mm. the word electricity comes from the greek word for amber which is electron because amber can create this static charge that's
0: why i was trying to remember was it like Mm. the amber thing or was it so far removed from the idea of electricity which is
3: a very interesting thing because we see lightning and think of the fish but in reality it's like those are really how would you yeah. know that those two are it's a lot stranger than we think it would be especially at the time it's, so that's
0: a, it's such a good point that to us it's just so intuitive now not intuitive yeah. it's so yeah. innate in us because we're taught uh-huh. that, that that's electricity but if you're just seeing it w- would you ever it, think that that's what oh, that and was also, uh-huh.
3: i've never seen an electric eel shock something or felt it so no. I, who am i to say that like it must feel like lightning yeah right? is it like
0: uh-huh. a oh is it uh, maybe they thought it was poisonous
3: oh we'll get into it yeah ooh, spiky. that was where
1: my brain went yeah that's why i said tingly because are... it was like does it just feel tingly to people you, you guys know? are
3: doing an amazing deductive job so and also i'll say later on we'll get a first-hand account of what it feels like to be shocked by oh. Like, oh, eel. fantastic! <laughs> um, so i came across this paper and it is an all-timer for me. Uh, First of all, it's a review of ancient medicine, which we know by now is full of that good stuff. (laughs) But secondly, it has a banger of a title. Uh, So it's from a bunch of folks at the University of Athens, and it's titled The Torpedo Effect in Medicine. Okay. And just that title alone sent me down a rabbit hole. What do you guys think that means?
1: Whoosh, you know?
3: (laughs) (laughs) So the paper's not about torpedoes like submarines fire
1: that's where my brain went yeah because
3: where do you where do you think we got the word torpedo from
1: oh for goodness sake of
3: course
1: oh this is is
3: torpedo is another name for the electric ray
0: oh which is a a stingray the stingray is that the yes
3: but it's one that like the electric eel can generate an electric discharge and in ancient rome before we had the word electric torpedo was its only name and It got that name from the prefix torpor, which in Latin means numbness, paralysis, absence of energy, and lethargy. Ah,
0: And torpor torpor is what hibernation is. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Hibernation Ah. is a form of torpor, which is like going into a stasis. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, So it's it's the
3: same prefix where it's like, but this is obviously like like a brief moment of torpor, like sudden torpor, right? Which is so interesting. So
0: it's the torpor eel
3: yeah well this is the torpor ray in this in this in this area of the world but,
0: but the eel w- is the same name right, right? yeah well,
3: well actually and uh, and this is so fucking cool so according to the atlantic quote indigenous people in venezuela called this animal the arimna or something that deprives you of motion
0: Ah. Uh... So they're really powerful. That's actually implying that, that they're very strong, that they can cause paralysis. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, or, I, I mean, it's like a localized, like temporary paralysis in like your leg or something. Oh, I see. I
0: see. Okay, Okay. Yeah. But isn't that...
1: That makes just fucking, like so much sense to name something after the impact it can have rather than the yes. thing that causes it. Like, rather
3: than the flow of electrons. It's like, yeah, makes of course. so yeah.
1: much sense, <laughs> yeah.
3: But isn't it so... Fu- like you have ancient indigenous word and then you have this ancient roman word and they're both like the same kind of feeling for yeah, mm, yeah you know and then it turns out that they're all electric uh, and then to your point caroline there are ancient egyptian murals that depict what we now know are electric catfish uh but the reason i said you're right and you're wrong is that of course there's no electric lines yeah, because that's yeah. not how you would describe <laughs> that feeling but the point remains As far back as written record, we have basically always known about these weird, zappy, freaky fish. Zappy
1: little guys, yeah.
3: And when it comes to the ancient Greeks, we have a bit more info. So the paper from the University of Athens notes that our boy Aristotle, famously good theorizer (laughs) of animals, uh, said of the electric ray, quote, it necrotizes the creature that it Mm. wants to catch Overpowering them by shock that is resident in its body and then feeds upon them. They
0: had it, the word shock, though. Isn't that interesting? That's isn't so that in- interesting. Because we now, it's like an accidental lineup yeah. of the word. But like, yeah, but shock, they mean shock like, <gasps> like surprise, surprise yeah, but not that, like what we. Isn't that so wild, though? Language is funny. It's
3: full <laughs> of these like. Almost like anachronisms, right? Because you almost want to be like, "How did he know? He must be like a time traveler. He knew about like shock When if Aristotle
0: was a time traveler, he was shit at it because he was he he forgot a (laughs) lot of stuff. (laughs) He took he took like first
3: grade biology and then then figured out the rest. Um, But I so I'll say honestly, this is like his most accurate description of an animal ever.
1: That's pretty spot on. Yeah,
3: pretty pretty right. So the paper also says the Greek philosopher Theophrastus recognized that the shock from the torpedo, the electric ray, could be conducted through the trident used to spirit.
2: And centuries later,
3: Plutarch realized that this effect can be transmitted through the water itself. So like they're getting hints, but obviously Mm. they they still didn't have enough information to like figure out what was actually going on. Plato even roasted Socrates once by saying, if I may venture to you to make a jest upon you, you seem to me both to your appearance and in your power over others to be very much like the flat torpedo fish who torpifies those who come near him and touch him as you have now torpified me.
0: Torpify. <gasps> there's some real great, oh, Wow. first of all, great roast, but there's some real great <laughs> language like necrotize that Aristotle said. Yeah. Yeah. Torpify. These are, oh, they're just, they're just really nice words. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. But, of course, most entertainingly, it was used medically. <laughs> uh, Ella, you were talking about that, like, feet shocking thing. You were not far off. So... Oh, so
0: it's it's like they're putting it... You know what? Maybe I don't want to know where they're putting it. So... <laughs> well... Okay,
3: you are correct, and I'm still going to say it. So, as one book from around the first century put it, for any type of gout, a live black torpedo should, when the pain begins, be placed under feet. Okay. The patient must stand on a moist shore, washed by the sea, and he should stay like this until his whole foot and leg up to the knee is numb.
0: Uh, oh, good. Okay, sure. Look, it's not good science, but at least what the treatment is is trying to be directly related to the yeah Yeah. yeah. right as
3: opposed to well okay well so I have another sentence um, (laughs) which is that uh, the paper also notes uh, the distinguished pharmacologist Dioscorides added prolapsed anus to the list of diseases treatable by jolts of drltsophoria.
1: You also said you didn't want to hear
0: where this is going. I kind of—you were spot oh, on. I kind of knew. You did
1: the famous "speaking too soon"
3: yeah. <laughs> when it comes to ancient medicine.
0: In in all of humanity, if people think they can put it up their asshole, they will. They will.
3: Uh, I've never been so glad to have paused before taking a sip of tea in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've already said it but like aside from being funny it is a really genuinely interesting time and period and like context to try to put your brain in i was gonna say the the shock thing but you guys have already noted that like aristotle described the shock but he meant like a a (gasps) shock of surprise not a shock of electricity that was caroline demonstrating shock (laughs) Uh, (laughs) like it it feels so anachronistic all the time talking about electricity back then uh but there was a quote that i found really helped me contextualize all this and it sort of links together the, how we've been talking about like lightning and stuff like that so uh physicist and professor greg geber wrote up a great blog post about like this history of electricity and biology and as he reminds us quote electricity could be generated through atmospheric chemical and mechanical means and it was by no means obvious that these different sources were manifestations of the same fundamental electrical phenomena
0: can you english that
3: (laughs) lightning comes from the fucking sky and this fish is coming from the water why would we ever think it's the same thing
0: yeah it's a good Mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. it's a good point i mean and the thing is i actually just don't know very much about how electricity works anyway and so yeah, I'm yeah. taking it as given because totally. I've been told, not because I have any understanding of that. Yeah. Totally. 100%. Absolutely.
3: 100%. So when then did we first start calling it the electric ray and the electric eel?
0: Well, post electricity discovery, I assume. Yes. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Because not only do we have to discover that electricity is a thing, but also can realize yeah. that that is electricity that's yeah. happening.
3: So you may have remembered from the superseded theories episode, like I said, the word electricity would be first used and hypothesized in the mid 1600s. And the concept of electricity would be like tested and formalized over the next 200 years. Like you could write like a dozen books about all the experiments happening. And during all that time, scientists were piecing together two and two that like, this amber effect, the lightning, this like necrotic Mm. fish torpor were the same thing. You have a bunch of papers going around at this time of different scientists trying to figure out what's happening with these fish. You have Bertrand Bajon, John Walsh, John Hunter. And it's hard to pinpoint when exactly this name shift happens because uh, language is weird. But by the time Carl Linnaeus starts naming shit scientifically in the 1750s, He gives electric eels the name Electrophorus electricus. Ah, okay. We know at at least by then. But the story of electricity and electric eels does not stop there because, right, it doesn't stop at just being like, oh, that's electric. Let's move on. Because one of the wildest stories to come out of this time is an invention by a guy named Alessandro Volta, who, of course, you get that's where the, no, the, the v- name of the fraud, word fraud, of course word it is i was just about from. to say
0: what a convenient name
3: <laughs> Ella, i literally i'm wanting to know this is the funniest time in history to read about because it, it's literally just like avengers name drops like left <laughs> and right it's like hi pleasure to meet you i'm cassandra cassandra iphone uh, like, it, feels, it feels that ridiculous um so there's a fantastic paper written by marco piccolino uh he wrote for trends in neuroscience it gives us like a great glimpse into this time of electricity. And he even digs into letters that Volta wrote. It's really great paper. And so as Piccolino describes, quote, Volta was alluding to the explanation of electric fish discharge given by Cavendish, an explanation that led Cavendish to build up an artificial torpedo, again meaning the fish.
0: An artificial fish?
3: An artificial electric fish, an artificial torpedo that was capable of producing an electric shock when immersed in water. Okay. So Cavendish is like doing this. This inspired Volta, who would then make what he described in a letter as an artificial electric organ an artificial way to emulate the electric organ inside these fish and that invention would later get a different name because it was the first fucking electric battery
0: oh no wow that's so Whoa. so uh,
3: in some ways it's kind of cosmically insulting to say that when i said at the start that like someone put batteries in an eel because batteries were kind of at least in part inspired by electric eels. Oh
0: wow! This is just making me wonder now how it works. That I didn't. First of all, I didn't know they had an electric organ specifically. No. To, yes, which yes is they do. Yeah, fascinating. Which is really cool. I thought it might have been a whole body. We'll get into yeah how they. I know, works. but I want to know now, Tom. <laughs> but I think
3: I that really I really was like oh electric eels are ripping off electricity it's like they they are the ones who gave us the battery like it's its really like saying like oh man all these like black artists keep ripping off Elvis Presley and it's like oh no oh sweetie no, no, no it's, no, it's no. really
0: yeah I mean it's not I don't know what why you would have thought that electric eels were ripping off electricity obviously they were pre-electricity obvious i know but like it's more like i think the i think the comparison is yeah. thinking that elvis invented rock and roll yeah. and completely ignoring the fact that it was already done probably yes. better yeah by yes yes, else. yes yes yes
3: exactly yeah isn't it so cool that Power World invented a way to uh, capture animals in <laughs> tiny balls
2: and stuff?
3: Now, of course, there's a whole topic to be had of like all the like feuds and discoveries of scientists at the time, all the like fucking, of course, Edison, Tesla, all that shit. But we have to remember, like you were saying, Ella, more intelligent than any of these white guys Evolution beat these motherfuckers to the patent a long time ago before all of that. So let's talk about the bigger question.
1: Finally!
3: How does electricity work in Eel's? And also, how did it evolve?
1: Because that's the thing, right? Like, it being there and there being an organ there. Like, okay, I can accept that. That's fine. But how the fuck does an animal just get the ability to produce Correct. a little... And, like, how did they realize that was useful? Why not go down a no, route yep. that might be a bit easier for them, like poison or a stinger, you Like know?
0: Evolution doesn't work like that, you know? It doesn't go... It's, not, no, like, it's not like, this is convenient. So it happens to be a trait that... Natural selection isn't the only route into evolution. You have lots of reasons. Very true. That,
3: that's one hundred percent true, right? And 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 things don't always have to evolve in a way that is intuitive or seem logical. But this turns out to be surprisingly intuitive in in how it evolved. Ooh, okay. Um, but to Caroline's point, if you look up, okay, first of all, the fact that there's an electric organ <laughs> is like it feels like, and again, when you see diagrams of an eel, it's like this is the electric organ it's like a kid just made this up it's like when a kid draws like a map of the u.s it's like here's texas and it's like a huge shape but you know in that vein this topic i will admit is the cause of maybe my most embarrassing google search which was when did electricity evolve
0: (laughs) nice well i know i mean nice yeah fun I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it, yeah, it was yeah.
3: I, I, none of the search results understood what I was asking, but I'm glad that you guys know what I mean. Um, and so the answer, like when this first starts to appear, you know, again, this is an estimate, is roughly around 100 million years ago.
0: Okay, cool. So it's quite a long time ago. Yes, yeah, when
3: around the tail end of when dinosaurs were around. If that helps anyone.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, that's fine then, because there's like really complex multicellular life at this point, so it's not that surprising to me that that's yes. so. Yes. It is actually. I yeah. think quite Correct. recent, realistically, in terms of like yeah. by this point, uh, you know, we had most groups like uh, branches the of the tree are
3: starting to yeah
0: yeah of mm-hmm. the phylogenetic mm-hmm. tree. So it's it's quite late in that sense. Butterflies
1: evolved in North America about 100 million years ago. Oh, there you go. There's another. So, so eels and go. butterflies, That's a what in the same. Electric organs and well, butterflies. Uh, yeah. Oh,
3: th- thank you, Caroline. But even uh, more interesting than when they first evolved is remember how I mentioned that cultures across the world had words for electric fish.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
3: Well, a subtle reason for that is the fact that there was an electric fish in ancient Egypt, in Greece, in the ancient Americas. And the only reason reason that could be possible (gasps) is...
1: an evolution.
3: Caroline, you get to ring the conversion evolution bell because you guessed it first.
1: Ding 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 ding. ding. a ling. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yeah, this this has evolved multiple times independently. Whoa. And to clarify my language a bit cuz I know I've been saying electric eels, I've been saying electric animals. What I'm talking about are animals that can deliver an electric shock otherwise known as an electric organ discharge or electrogenesis.
0: Okay, another good word. I'm going to write that down. A fantastic word.
3: And those groups are the electric ray or the torpedo, as we've been calling it, which has been noted in Greece and Rome, Uh, the electric catfish, which we noted in Egypt and other parts of Africa, um, I didn't realize this. Uh, the stargazer fish can apparently shock people.
0: And that I assume that all of these animals that have an electrical are gonna fish because of the conductivity of water. Exactly.
3: I was gonna ask you that oh. question, but that's that's what you're, we're gonna get to. So the ray, the catfish, the stargazer fish, and of course, lastly, the electric knife fish.
1: Nice. The way I was like. My face was ready for it. I was like, eel, yeah, it's gonna be. It's, oh.
3: well, the electric knifefish is more commonly known by its other name, the electric eel.
1: It's not an oh. eel. Oh. It's not an it's eel. Not.
3: It's, it's not, not, a not
1: an eel. eel. It's not
3: an
2: eel. I
1: didn't know there were true eels and not true eels what the fuck oh my ah. god are there true eels there are true What's eels. true a true eel, What's a true eel? <gasps> i mean
3: it's like it's like the same with carcinization and like true crabs right it's it's either the lineage that we like named first or the one that goes back the farthest but like i mean the moral we always get to is it's all fake anyway right like it, yeah. it's, it's
1: all labels that we have assigned to it it doesn't matter
3: and i will say to be fair an electric eel can be between six to eight feet long. What? And that's about the same length as the green moray eel. So it's like fair, right? It's not like. Okay. But yeah, it's not an eel. And I know, I know biologists have been yelling at me this whole time to be like, you have to say it. And to those people, I say, get in line with all the other animals that need their names fixed. It's a, it's a long fucking uh-huh. line. Yeah. Now, other animals do have electroreception. Which you guys might know. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. sensing electrical charges. I
0: know we talked about this very briefly in the the how many senses do we have yes. episode? Because we don't have this. Oh yeah,
3: <laughs> some fish, also sharks and dolphins have this. Also, and I'm gonna have to say it really quickly, so we don't hang on this. Apparently,
0: platypi and echidnas do. Yes. Which at this yes, point, a can. fucking course they do. Yeah, a, they, a fucking they, they're, course. They're like why are they animals?
3: Why not? We can't get into it another time.
0: Monotremes are they are everything everything everywhere all at once (laughs) they are
3: everything and nothing (laughs) 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 and other fish can generate like very weak shocks they're known as weakly electric fish and they seem to not use their shocks for like causing harm but for another reason can you guess
0: um to make their presence aware to others of their fish of the of their species uh to to, to feel things around them oh what would yeah. you what
3: what name would you call that if you were pinging out electricity like that
0: what like an echolocation, location electro kind of... location you got it oh, yeah well done for
3: both like detecting things and also to your point ella for uh communication ah. but we're not here for that right now we're here for the big stuff we're here for using electricity as a weapon <laughs> so we're going to focus on the electric eels because their shock is the strongest. Right. Um, remember how I said electric eels were six to eight feet long? Yes. Uh, Michael Sussman told the University of Wisconsin-Madison, since all of their visceral organs are near their face, the remaining 90% of the fish is almost all electrical organs. Wow. Whoa, that's sick. But what would that feel like? Uh, this is where I'm going to pull out that first-hand quote. Do you guys have any guesses?
0: Bad ouchy i can't say i've ever been electrocuted so i
1: have once by a horse like enclosure uh, thing. how was it i've always wanted to grab onto an electric oh, man. fence
3: huh
1: <laughs> i like. Haven't. yeah no wouldn't recommend <laughs> it um <laughs> i wasn't very old i thought somebody had stabbed me in my back oh my and God. then i thought somebody had like hit me in my back and i went like because it was one of those electric fences some of them like draw you in some of them push you out again like trying to make you let go it was one of those ones that like pushed me back out again thankfully um but yeah it hurt but also it yeah. didn't like feel like stinging painful it was very just like i don't even know how to describe it yeah, yeah it's it was interesting ex- it was an experience
3: <laughs> <laughs> so as emma goldberg wrote for the new york times the average shock from an electric eel lasts about two thousandths of a second okay the pain isn't searing but isn't pleasant a brief muscle contraction then numbness for scientists who study the animal the pain comes with the professional territory i remember the first time i was shocked said carlos david de santana an ichthyologist who recalled falling into the water and dropping his equipment (gasps) i was scared
0: oh well yeah (laughs) What's shit. an ichthyologist? Is that fish? That's fish, right? A marine biology who studies different fish species. I've never heard that word before. Yeah.
3: Oh. But if it's scary for humans, for fish, it is fucking gnarly. Oh, uh, gosh, I found yeah. a stellar write up in Scientific American by author and biology professor Kenneth Catania, who did some firsthand experiments looking at electric eel attacks. And it is so, as uh, Catania put it, when an electric eel attacked a prey fish with high voltage, All the nearby fish in the tank became completely immobile in only three milliseconds. That's cool. It was as if they had been turned into little statues. They just floated stock still in the water.
0: And this is because of the the water conductivity.
3: Exactly. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to say, it is the electric analog of a neurotoxin, allowing the eel to capture and subdue otherwise dangerous animals such as large clawed crayfish. I think that that phrasing of it is like really like, it's like, oh, it's like a neurotoxin. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, Framing yeah. it in terms of other like animal behavioral stuff.
0: But I suppose it would be temporary as well. Correct, yes. Oh, and and he,
3: he notes that they can shake it off, but it turns out it gets even more clever and sinister than just that. So we know they can do this Big shock, and like other electroreceptive animals, they can do like little low voltage like sensing. Right, mm-hmm. uh, it's really helpful in like dark and murky waters, and they have poor mm. eyesight, so that's just like to reach out. But they also will occasionally do something called a doublet, which is two really quick high voltage pings, like Bing Bing. And do you know why they would do that?
1: Uh, to alert each other of their presence, maybe.
3: No, it's so ah. much more nefarious. The quick double ping delivers just enough voltage to make any nearby fish involuntarily twitch its muscles <gasps> which oh, lets the eel know it's alive oh, and going for the kill. That's
0: great. That's so I'm crazy. I'm so into electric eels uh-huh. now. This
1: is crazy.
3: Like Whoa. like sci-fi authors out there like take Can you imagine like it's like a scene from Alien you're like hiding from the alien you're keeping super quiet and then it just pings and you scream, like you yell, yeah. because like yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. control your muscle.
0: Great idea. That's
3: so... Also, Catania wrote, quote, and this fine detail really gets me also. He goes, eels do not activate the fish muscles directly. Instead, their zaps activate the nerves that lead to the fish muscles. And so he theorizes the eel's electric output may have been shaped in part by what happens to the muscles of its prey which is,
1: Uh, yeah, okay, yeah,
0: makes sense.
3: Makes sense, but it does get wilder because aside from like just shocking and then biting its prey, it does something devious. So again, as he describes it, in introductory physics, you learn that bringing a negative pole close to the positive pole greatly increases the field strength in between. Eels have apparently taken physics because they use this move on difficult struggling prey. The eel holds the victim firmly in its jaws and curls its tail, oh. the negative pole, around oh. the animal before delivering a series of oh. high voltage volleys. Whoa. So uh, what's happening here? How did this animal evolve this invisible weapon in its body? And how did it happen multiple times? And along with that, oh, I was going to ask the question, why does this only happen in fish? But Ella pointed out, it's a pretty simple answer. Uh, I have a quote here. Uh, According to biochemistry professor Michael Sussman in Reuters, this only arose in fish because water is a conductor of electricity while air is not. Thus, birds or terrestrial animals could not come up with this.
1: Fair enough, yeah.
3: But what I was more surprised by is that the answer to the first question, how did it evolve, is almost as simple as that. These electric organs that make up the eel are mostly made up of cells called electrocytes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's most of what they are. It's just like a whole stack, like literally like Oreo stacks. There's stacks and there's multiple of them. Okay. But here's the thing. As zoology professor Jason Gallant told Reuters, electric organs start out their lives as muscle precursor cells. Through a series of developmental steps, they become larger, more electrically excitable, and lose their ability to contract.
0: Okay. Interesting. And this is interesting because muscle cells respond to electricity in order to contract.
3: Exactly. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Exactly. And so, as a paper from 2014 in Science put it, the three lineages of electric fish studied here share patterns of gene expression in transcription factors and pathways, contributing to increased cell size, increased excitability, and decreased contractility. Now. There is another evolutionary trick that sort of like finishes the equation, which is that by arranging these in series, they sum their electricity. It's literally like stacking batteries in series, ah. right? It's, it's basically just a whole bunch of small former muscle cells that have specialized to, rather than like move, like transfer the electricity and, and generate the electricity. And so if, if you think about like how any... Neuron or or muscle cell generates like a single tiny electrical pulse using like sodium ions, right? Stuff like that moving it around the cell, creating a imbalance of like electrons inside the cell and outside the cell. You just stack a whole bunch of them. And like there is some complex neural stuff going on in terms of like how you trigger them all at once, sort of like a you get all of them to fire at the same time. Mm -hmm. But at its Core, it's just like sodium ion shit that we learned in high school biology. It's, are you guys, are you guys kind of like seeing it? Like,
0: Um, I think I'm kind of following it. Yeah. I'm going to try and explain it like how I learned.
3: Yes. Yes, please, please. How
0: neurons, um, yes, an action potential, which is the kind of Mm -hmm. electricity, I suppose, moving down a neuron, a signal. And this is, as is ions like sodium ions, potassium moving in and out the cell at different rates, so you get different charges on either side of the cell. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about here?
3: Yes. Yeah. It it creates like an electric charge and like a tension that you can then release.
0: Oh, so they're building up the electricity in the cells yes, and then they are letting yes. it go. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Imagine if every neuron in your brain fired at the same time, right?
0: Okay. So it's just that there's so many of them in series lined up like in a batteries. series and then yeah. they trigger the release of ions out of the cells so that the charge that was in like so it was a positive charge in the cells say yes and then then all the ions rush out of the cell through receptors and then it's outside but that means that they have to release all of this um, energy that they built up out of their body which goes out into the water exactly yeah that's very clear thank you that's yeah great way good but, and isn't that... It, no, no, it's, it's like, incredible. It's, it's so interesting. I, the thing I find really interesting about that evolutionary is that what it was is you have an eel, you have some kind of fish. Yeah. They have normal muscle contracting cells. Yes. It just yeah. happens. Maybe not for any specific reason. Could have just been like a mutation. It's a mutation that meant that the muscle cell this was a bit smaller. And, yeah. and, and, not and it wasn't contracting as much. As much. Maybe. And then maybe they had a few of those. Yeah. And then that one and that starts to release. And then you get the echo and then yeah. you get the electrolocation yeah. and then build it up and up and up.
1: So when you're thinking about it like, oh, why would it evolve that Like back to my previous question yes. of like why go that route? Actually, this like potentially quite simple mutation of just yeah. a muscle cell makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you know, Isn't that fucking bonkers, yeah. right? Like we went from uh, Ella
3: being like, how does this work to being like, well, Tom, here's how action potential works in the neuron. Yeah,
0: yeah. Actually that's it's such a good point because to me I thought it would be because I'm still I was still mm. equating it to like, how does this work? Because in my head I'm thinking, I don't understand how batteries work. I don't understand how circuits <laughs> yeah, I, understand I don't understand how, how circuits cables,
1: work, Tesla
0: coils, and, Tesla coils, any and so of I'm it. like so because I don't understand that I can't understand this. But it's not yeah, that yeah, yeah, it's yeah. biology. Yeah. <laughs> but then like the physics
3: is the biology, like it's all the same. Like if I if I had to do a topic on batteries, I could probably then explain it to you in Through, yeah. in terms of a cell yeah. because so like actually, yeah. batteries are just using ions too.
0: That's so yeah. So ah oh, yeah. I know nice. right. Like we. Uh, oh, I like how we've c- Caroline and me have like met you like halfway here that we yeah, actually yeah, yeah, we we, yeah. we were thinking about it so yeah. different. We were thinking about it the same, but from different angles. <laughs> yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And now it's the electric organ went from being like a black box to being like totally intuitive Mm. right like these electrocytes they're not magic they're just like a hyper specialized version of fucking like sodium ion channels that we learned about in high school biology it's just like that's
0: like any cell that's like any cell in Mm -hmm. the body everything is just hyper specialized well
3: when you talk about every cell like where my brain went is also remembering that like every cell is kind of Electric.
0: Oh yeah, right? yeah, that's like good. But well, neurons... that's what I'm saying yeah. about yeah, neurons. Absolutely. Neurons have—that's yeah. how they send signals.
3: And like neurons are are like definitely like the the prime example. But even like other mm-hmm. cells. So, so there's a uh, researcher Amber Plant put it, quote: "The elements in our bodies, like sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium, have a specific electrical charge." Almost all of our cells can use these charged elements called ions to generate electricity.
0: It's just on a much smaller scale.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's even a paper from 2021 titled How Bacteria Use Electric Fields to Reach Surfaces. Ah. So to answer the very first question Caroline asked in our very first episode, what other animals are electrically charged? Kind of. All of all of them? <laughs> all right. I know. I have it in the script. I know that's like, woo woo. It's like, we're all made of atoms. But, like, yeah. to be fair, like, you know, another brain blast moment I had is realizing that technically my magnetic animals topic doubles as an electric animals topic mm-hmm. because it's electromagnetism.
1: Yeah, so, technically, yeah. this topic
3: is uh magnetic animals too, electric boogaloo.
1: <laughs> oh, for goodness' sake.
3: Uh, but this sentence broke me. It's from Ken Catania again. He goes, for each high-voltage pulse that the electric eel does, the flow of command signal starts in the eel's brain and travels to its motor neurons, which then activate the electric organ. From there, the signal passes through the water to trigger the motor neurons and then muscles in nearby fish. In other words, the eel immobilizes its prey using a form of high-fidelity remote control.
0: Ah. If, if actually huh the funny thing about it is <laughs> the eel is using it's what we use to move anyway so yes. we, you know that's yeah totally, totally they're sending the you know you're sending the the signal down from your brain to your muscles you're getting electric kind of and then you are contract and they're contracting they're just doing that in like an extreme way it's yeah, so extreme yeah. that it
3: can control the muscles of another animal
0: oh <laughs> yeah. gosh
3: i want to be crystal clear like we're getting a little woo-woo, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, we all have electrons and we're all made of atoms and so are we all the same? You know, it's at a certain point it becomes kind of subjective and debatable. Yeah. But it's very funny to have started this research as like, I don't know, do eels have batteries in them? To being like, go full tilt the other way and be like, eels can control the minds of other fish. <laughs> <laughs> like, like through electricity, they can like force choke someone. And I think in the end both of these statements have a surprising amount of truth to them which is kind of wild but what's so interesting to me is that you remember at the start i mentioned a quote about how you know we can't blame the ancient romans and greeks for not realizing that all these different phenomena were all Mm. electricity right like they're so different but like here we are relearning the same thing that like this electricity yeah, in a yeah. cell is the same as the like electricity in an electric eel is the same as the electricity in a battery like this has been puzzling the human mind for thousands and thousands of years yeah, and yeah. it's given us so much history and etymology and physics and technology and philosophical questions and it all comes from a few weird fish. And <laughs> I just great. think that's pretty shocking. You guys, you guys don't know how many times I had to read that pun in articles. I get one. I earned You've done
0: you a really good <laughs> job. Considering how long this well topic done. was. Yeah. Very... You, would
1: you say it was electrifying? Oh no. I knew that was coming. I knew that I knew you were holding that one in. You're just waiting to say it.
3: I'm just glad I could amp you guys up. <laughs> oh just threw away all that goodwill. I I built up so much goodwill. I really goodwill. enjoyed that topic, Tom, and I you, got you guys excited about physics.
0: Throwing it all away. <laughs> I threw Threwed it all it it. away. Yeah. That's
3: it. That's electric. Uh, fish. that was
0: really wonderful. <laughs> a great story. <laughs> Thank you. The, oh my god, Tom, the cell stuff. Great. Love it. Really just so interesting. It's so good. <laughs> we have a jumbo Woo! <laughs> <laughs> And this is for Tony from Andrea. I'll read it out. Thank you from your big sister for introducing me to this absolutely amazing podcast. I love learning such a wide array of things, and it's always fun to chat about episodes after we've both listened. You may be the smarter one of us siblings, but at least with both <laughs> of us listening, you don't have even more of a leg up. Love you lots. Aww. <laughs> Aww very oh, very that, sweet. there's that
3: sibling spite love <laughs> the truest form of love absolutely
0: oh yeah <laughs> i love that siblings are listening to this together how sweet is that that's so nice no.
1: oh my goodness I can't even get my brother to listen to this show. So, oh, yeah. Also,
3: Andrea, Andrea, if you want, you can just message us and we can give you a leg up. We can give you the facts early so you can sound super oh, smart. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, we'll give you the, oh, the prescripts. What, a so yeah. like, what the? How did you know that? <laughs> like, man, I wish they would talk about how uh, electricity works on a cellular level. You know, oh my goodness, they did. What?
3: <laughs> spoil, spoil everything. Anything for sibling spite. And if you have a sibling rivalry you want to air out, or any other kind of message you want us to read, you can get your own Jumbotron at let'slearneverything.com slash Jumbotron. The Eurovision Song Contest. Hundreds of millions of people watch it every year. It played a part in a democratic revolution in Portugal. It introduced the world to Riverdance, and it launched Celine Dion's career. But you might have never watched it. It's got so much history and so many storylines that it can feel overwhelming to get into. Mm-hmm. It's like a Real Housewives season, but everyone's a better singer. Well, sometimes. But that's where we come in. I'm Dimitri Pompei. I'm Oscar Montoya. And I'm Jeremy Bent, and we're the hosts of Eurovangelists. If you're new to Eurovision, we'll tell you everything you need to know to start enjoying the world's most important, Important song competition. And if you're already a fan, we'll dive deep on its wildest moments, like when Ireland sends a turkey puppet to sing for them. You're evangelist. New episodes every Thursday. On maximumfun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Fresh, fresh, fresh,
2: fresh, 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 uh, fresh, 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 fresh. Hey, what are you guys fresh, doing? Fresh, fresh.
0: We're hungry. Tom but we don't want the hassle of like going to store and buying all the ingredients and thinking of a recipe and all sure. of that stuff so sure. yeah
3: So you're just, what, what are you doing?
0: So we
1: are channeling our magical energies into a chant to summon food
0: That
3: doesn't sound right Just you wait
0: See, let me just uh, go and grab that
3: I'm sorry, what's, what's happening right now?
0: It's a HelloFresh box, pre-packed Oh, Ella fresh. actually left. Ella actually <laughs> just, like, walked out. <laughs> it's a HelloFresh box.
1: Pre-packed, farm-fresh ingredients delivered straight to your door.
0: Here we go. Ooh, okay, I've got some lovely recipes this time. I've got a beef ragu, which only takes 15 Ooh. minutes to prepare. <gasps> um, I'm super wow. busy right now, so I love that. And a oh, chicken bow, genuinely one of my favourite recipes. <gasps> wait, what about the breakfast? Let me have a look. <laughs> no, not in no. there. we better do the breakfast chant. <laughs> breakfast, <laughs> breakfast, 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 guys, stop, breakfast. stop, stop, please. Ah, there we go.
1: Breakfast is in here.
3: Hold, hold on, wait, no, that wasn't...
1: Free breakfast in every delivery, courtesy of HelloFresh. Can, can I get in on this? You better start chanting, Tom. Wait, go on.
0: Fresh, fresh. So, I have fresh, used HelloFresh fresh for fresh, years. Fresh, uh, as we've fresh, mentioned fresh, many times fresh, before, I normally fresh, hate cooking, fresh, but fresh, this just takes fresh, all of fresh, the stress out fresh, of it for me. Fresh, I always feel fresh, great after fresh, I've made something, fresh, and it fresh, always comes out so, fresh, so fresh,
1: darn fresh, tasty.
0: Fresh, fresh. <sighs> Guys, it's not working. Why isn't it working?
1: <laughs> you lack the magical energy. You'll just have to try the normal way. Are you fucking. I didn't have to change. Oh. <laughs>
0: Well, no, I mean, you just can't do it. That's fine, whatever. So instead, go to hellofresh.com slash learnfree and use code LEARNFREE for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash learnfree with code LEARNFREE.
3: Fresh,
2: fresh, 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 fresh,
0: (laughs) fresh.
3: Oh, no, Caroline's turned into a ragu. (laughs)
1: I'm Jordan Cruciola, host of Feeling Seen, where we start by asking our guests just one question. What movie
0: character made you feel seen? I knew exactly what it was. Clementine from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind.
3: Joy Wang slash Jobu Tupaki.
1: That one question launches amazing conversations about their lives, the movies they love,
0: and about the past, present, and future of entertainment.
3: Roy in uh, Close Encounters of the
2: Third Kind.
0: I worry about what this might say about me, but I've brought Tracy Flick in the film Election. So if
1: you like movies, diverse perspectives, and great conversations, check us out.
0: Oof, this is real.
1: New episodes of Feeling Seen drop every week on MaximumFun.org. So, for the miscellaneous topic, I want to talk about women's work, and specifically... The rise of craftivism. We're not going to talk too much about modern craftivism in this one, just because, oh my goodness, there is so much to say about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I do want to start off with a little bit of a preamble that when I talk about women's work, I want to be really clear about what I'm talking about, which is the white Western point of view for all of this stuff. A Mm, lot of mm. what I might say applies to a lot of different groups. The concept of women's work is a pretty universally applicable concept for women of a lot of different backgrounds. If you do want to dip your toes into what I'm going to talk about from different perspectives, a nice place to start is a video by Melissa Porter, which I've got in the show notes. Yeah, it's a lovely place to start if you want to learn a little bit more about other perspectives. So yeah, what I want to do now is outline what I mean by women's work, and especially talking about the domestic arts. So I wanna hear from you guys, what do you think I mean when I'm saying women's work? Um, that Kate Bush song. Yeah, I mean, so valid. Whenever I was Googling women's work, that was often the first thing that came up, which was pretty frustrating.
3: Babushka? (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Running up that hill? (laughs) wuthering heights you oh there's a song called this woman's work yeah. got it okay yeah.
1: <laughs> i was like hounds of love <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. this is beautiful ella it wow something like that
0: this woman's work that's that one that's what i think of and that's the whole
1: episode folks thank you both so much for coming <laughs>
3: today <laughs> uh my favorite tweet or tiktok is like the concept of womanhood is not that complicated when shania twain says let's go girls if you go then you are a woman i also yeah, saw that and
1: yeah, i loved that's a great it. that's great <laughs> and then after that seeing somebody who was gender fluid being like hey sometimes i stand up and sometimes i uh, don't explains it so valid yeah <laughs> i think what i think of
0: is think back to the episode where i covered witches the witch trials and how women's work Mm. was like traditionally you know medicine midwifery supporting the community that kind Mm -hmm. of thing Mm -hmm. and and then by breaking that down and uh putting women into a different position you could remove a lot of the independence of like small communities
1: yeah absolutely you're you're pretty much on the right sort of vein of what i want to talk about today We go a little bit more specific into some of this stuff. Another word that I'm using a lot is the domestic arts.
3: Yes, because that reminds me of um home home economics. Have you guys heard that? Home
0: yes. economics, yeah, I've heard of it. We don't do home economics in the UK, or maybe we not for a long time at least. Yeah,
3: yeah, and I th- I don't think we have in the US either. And I- I've heard some people bemoan that because the fact that like lots of men don't know how to cook. I was gonna and say like, like I I think should, yeah, yeah. I think
0: practical skills in school like home economics can be really useful as long as it's not a gender based thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. But yeah, so you're both kind of like getting there along the right kind of lines. Actually, mentioning home economics is like really, really close, but Mm -hmm. things that have been almost stereotypically viewed as activities or work that is feminine is work that women do are things that have been almost set aside for women to participate in Mm. I I mean I did
0: practically know that that's probably what you meant but also I was almost adverse to saying that that is women's work absolutely
1: yeah yeah and we'll talk about that feeling in a bit absolutely Um, that's a great point Ella yeah but yeah so when I'm saying women's work I mean stereotypically things like Cooking, bread making, pottery, candle making, but also a lot of the textile arts. So, embroidery, mm, crocheting, mm. knitting, quilting, things like that. Um, um,
0: speaking of, just very quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, Caroline is a knitter. Crocheter. Sorry, cure crocheter.
1: Yeah. It is arts that were historically done to help provide for your household, and therefore were historically done privately, oftentimes by women.
2: mm I was going to
1: ask, when you think of people who typically participate in these activities, who do you think of? Like when you think of people who are crocheting, who are knitting, who are quilting, I feel like it's not unreasonable to say that oftentimes we associate women in that category. A lot of the times older women into that category, although less so at the moment, which is lovely. And a lot of these hobbies, these crafts have been viewed historically as women's work. A lot of sources suggest that many of these activities were viewed as more suitable for women to do, as it was compatible with things like breastfeeding and childcare, often slow repetitive activities that could be put down and returned to as needed. I have a bit of an issue with that statement. Okay. Mm. I don't necessarily agree with some of the sources that have been saying that.
0: Oh, (laughs) so they so that the historical implication that they're giving is that this is women's work that this was made women's work because naturally because it it was naturally more suited to having children exactly
1: yeah and this idea that this type of work was always a women's work it was always viewed as such because of those connotations um, which is what a lot of sources are suggesting especially around things like embroidery um, and like lace making using bobbins things like that there's mm. this sort of idea in a lot of the sources which is saying like we think that this was always women's work and I don't think that that's necessarily the case okay and the example I want to talk about <gasps> is with knitting I oh, have a lot exciting. of family members who do knitting and things like that
0: <laughs>
3: this is a big uh relief i feel like i don't know maybe i'm just speaking as the man uh but <laughs> i feel like i've been trying to articulate the words to say that like this work has been done by women in the past and has a history and a culture but i want to say that without implying that that was all of history or like destined to be history yeah which i think is the the the, the nuance that you're, you're pointing at here caroline
1: which yeah I'm, totally I'm, I'm excited for it. oh fantastic I'm, I'm so glad you're excited because actually tom i'm about to ask what you guys know about some of the origins of knitting
0: (gasps) ancient egypt i guess in my head it just feels like knitting is just clothes making so why wouldn't Uh everyone just do that you are like absolutely
1: spot on with that idea yeah so knitting very simply is the process in which a single yarn is used to make a piece of fabric typically with two needles
0: great yeah okay fine general enough yeah
1: we don't know for certain where knitting originated, of course, but some of our earliest examples are indeed from ancient Egypt. And actually, Tom, you have talked about an early <gasps> precursor to knitting not on the podcast, but on what? an ETC. What? Yeah. Oh. Let me sh- send you a photo. So- the socks? The socks. <laughs>
3: Caroline is showing us (laughs) a picture of some very old socks from Egypt which I briefly mentioned on in on a bonus episode once
1: (laughs) yeah so this is like a really early example of not necessarily knitting it wasn't quite sewing it was something called nally binding
0: oh okay
1: so it was something that they used to do with one needle rather than two so that is a really really early precursor of knitting um and it was of course to do things like make clothes Um, Another one of the earliest examples of like actual knitting with two needles is one that I'm going to send you a little photo of now as well, and it's also a sock. Here you go.
3: So this is that looks like a sock that a dog got through.
0: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like a sock. It's just like a piece of fabric. It looks pretty well made though, because it's like very tightly, it's tightly done, and it's patterned. Yeah, it's got like a
3: pattern. Uh huh. The first sock you sent was just like red. This one is, I would wear this on a sock design now.
0: Like,
1: this could be a jumper
0: pattern, to be honest. I think what I find impressive is that you can see, like, the the individual stitches or whatever you want to call them. It's very mm-hmm. tightly yes. done. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. When absolutely. you think of knitting
0: and crocheting, you think of quite, like, big, chunky yes.
1: yeah.
0: stuff. But this looks like it could be been made by a machine. It yes. 100% yeah.
1: does look like that. You're absolutely Which right. Which I'm yeah. sure
3: is another sort of, like... I feel like that's an electric eel inversion where it's like it, it I'm sure it was done for so long so well before machines yeah. obviously but like I also want to make that comparison Ella where I'm like oh a machine could do this and yeah. it's like well where uh-huh. do you think the machines learned
0: yeah to do yeah. That? Yeah, where did that come yeah From that's in the a first very good place, point
1: right yeah and even when you look oh. at the, the first sock that wasn't quite knitting like you do see how tightly woven those fabrics are and how tightly like put together those stitches are, like you said, Ella. Mm. Um, I think the difference between the two for me is just that pattern work, which when I was researching this, I was like, whoa, that is like so close to what modern knitting is now for people who are
0: very, very skilled at knitting. But Caroline. Ella. What does this have to do with men? I've... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ella, thank you for
3: saying what I've been thinking this whole time.
1: <laughs> so what I will very quickly say about this sock is that it was from between the 1100s and the 1300s. And this is actually an example of one that the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum have in boo.
0: London. I know, <laughs> boo his, but
1: I, I'm going to be mentioning them
0: quite a lot here. I'm very sorry, Ella. Well, Caroline's already done a topic on stuff the British stole, but the V&A is absolutely notorious for having just oh, yeah? absolutely Loads of stolen british artifacts and oh, i actually yes. i do not like the vna <laughs> as an institution so, the
1: vna stole this specific example from north africa oh great <laughs> are you kidding me are you fucking kidding me are you actually kidding me stole is a strong word this piece is from north africa
0: um, so yeah, it would have been major. Do we know the sources and... though? Do they get? Did they get it legally? Is actually, are
3: you? Did, uh, did Ella really call that just now? Did that just that just happen? I just want to be crystal clear. I,
1: I uh, did not look into where <sighs> they got the specific sock from. I'm I so doubt they sorry. have the
0: provenance that this came out yeah. of the country legally. And it's
1: also Caroline. I'm. I'm I
3: doubt <laughs> that the only thing they took was an abandoned <laughs> sock, a yeah. <that> broken sock. <laughs> yeah. Like I can't believe Ella actually called that. That's so fun. So this is this is has North African origins.
1: Yes. This yeah, song. absolutely uh, and they don't know specifically when it was made they've just given that rough time period um, but it is possibly one of the oldest pieces of knitwear that the vna have which is really really wow. interesting mm. so that's early knitting we now know from things like archaeological finds and from surviving tax lists that knitting started to spread and become popular in europe in the 14th century. And at this time, knitting was not solely viewed as women's work. Basically, as soon as it became a thing in Europe, groups or guilds were formed to develop the artistry of knitting. These guilds were almost exclusively established for men... Who wanted to improve their yeah. craft and attract wealthier clients?
0: Oh. Knitting
3: guilds. Yeah, knitting, knitting guilds, guilds
1: of men who were typically from like good backgrounds who wanted to get into this highly prestigious field of knitting. Oh yes. No the highly prestigious field way. of knitting. Dedicating their lives to this craft, like to get richer people to make stockings for and things like that i'm just so, yeah
0: i just gotta say it, no of fucking course way. they made it masculine by being like the knitting guild <laughs> the knitting guild i yeah. love it
1: yeah <laughs> so yeah it was a really valuable skill for everybody to learn boys and girls alike were encouraged to learn how to knit uh, and a common story I've read throughout doing do my reading for this suggests that fishermen were often people who were really encouraged to learn this skill as well. No of course, way. to make, they were making yeah. their nets. Yeah, exactly. So they were out at sea yes. at a really long makes time. so much sense. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> it makes so much sense, but for a few reasons. So obviously they were repairing and making their equipment. They were repairing and making their own clothes because they were out at sea for a long time but also as a hobby, as something to do in their spare time because they're oh, spending so yeah. long out at sea. Wow. Holy shit. Which I just think is wild. There are a few sources who said this. I couldn't find anything specific that documented this, but it is uh-huh. a really nice story that's shared quite a lot. Mm. In England, specifically, the manufacture of knitted goods was an important enough economy, essentially, an important enough like form of making money that it mm-hmm. was controlled by the government at one point. What? Sorry, knitting was controlled by the government? Like, well, you... specifically the manufacture of knitted caps, okay. uh, which are literally like knitted hat wear, basically. So there's something called the Cappers Act of 1571.
3: No fucking way. Which
1: stated that every person above the age of six years old in England on what? Sundays and holidays... Should wear a cap of walnut, <laughs> thicked and dressed in what? England, made oh. within this realm and only dressed and finished by some of the trade of cappers. So wait,
0: sorry, sorry, Le- <laughs> legally, everyone had to wear a cap <laughs> on a Sunday, yeah. <laughs> apart <laughs> from exceptionally
1: wealthy people, for the most I'm sorry, part. that's insanity. Oh, like all rules. <laughs> like all laws. <laughs> yeah, <It's, laughs> essentially yeah, saying that you had to put a knitted cap on your kid. So this was specifically on children. Uh, Or you'd get a fine for it.
0: You'd be... Oh, God, I'm sorry. You know when people make fun of the UK for having ridiculous laws (laughs) like the TV license? And I think, well, yes, (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) That's insane.
1: But this act was put pretty much solely in place to help keep up the production of knitted caps, protecting the livelihoods of these cappers, basically. Cappers,
0: I guess, were men as primarily men or... Yeah. Because you're going into the workplace to do it. So women are, you know, homemakers at this time, mostly. Yes, yeah,
1: absolutely. So yeah, even though one source specifically claims that knitting has always been women's work because it was actively compatible with breastfeeding and childcare... Um, I don't think that that's... Also compatible with fishing. It was compatible with <laughs> yeah. many different ways of life. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Like, I do think there's something to be said for the idea that some things are suited to women who, you know, were traditionally at home with children. Absolutely, like,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: But, but, yeah, the idea that it is just that or has always been that seems, yet unlikely. yeah, yeah.
1: unlikely. <laughs> really unrealistic, absolutely. So what happened why has knitting become the stereotypically very feminine thing to participate in? Um I don't know how much you know about knitting.
3: I do have a personal anecdote with knitting which is that in 3rd grade when we started to have clubs and there was like a board game club and like a kickball club, there was an option for a knitting club, but they didn't do it because I was the only person who signed <gasps> up. <gasps> no,
2: tell-
1: it was like me and like one or two other people so there's ultimate
3: reality where
1: where you were really into your crafts instead yeah yeah i want to put this out to you it might be a bit of a broad question but why do you think this might have started becoming something that was stereotypically a feminine thing to do just like very broadly
3: Yeah, I'm wondering if there's like an event or some sociological shift Uh that would uh cause it to happen.
0: Um, I have no clue. I I I just keep on thinking back to the the witch trial episode where the idea was like to forcibly, you know, women did do labor like farm yeah, labor that kind yeah, yeah, yeah. of thing they did work as well as be homemakers and and maybe it was like a way to make women a more complacent homemakers like uh, you know
1: you have got like half of the equation there definitely uh, and there is a particular period in especially like English and British history where this was a thing that was happening so that's one half of it the other half of it is something that was very briefly mentioned earlier when we were looking at the early examples of socks Ella, you said something about how it looked like it might have been made because of how tight the stitches were. Can you remember what mm-hmm. you said about that? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> something about knitting that can't be done with crochet, for example. Crochet cannot be done by a machine. Right. Knitting can. Okay. So, in the 1500s. Oh,
3: is it the fucking Industrial Revolution? Yeah, no, that's too early. It's is the, the it? Very, oh. very early
1: happenings of oh. the Industrial Revolution. Knitting can be done by machines, and knitting was mechanized. It was made a machine process in the 1500s. So, really, really early. So early. On. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The first knitting machine was invented in 1589 in Britain by a man named William Lee. This is
3: way earlier than I would have placed it. It's right? really, I have to say.
1: really early. Yeah, no, one hundred. <laughs> but then I guess
3: when you speak to the importance of it, or also, and also how popular it was, it I guess it makes sense. But it, I don't. It, yeah, it's just a recontextualizing. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. So, like, Uh, if I can take a guess then it's like it becomes industrialized commercialized
1: yeah yeah
0: and so the only form of knitting left is for pleasure Uh uh-huh uh-huh and so people are only doing that if they're at home
1: yeah you're pretty much like spot on there basically um so early knitting machines were created and mainly used to create things like stockings. They could only create a flat piece of cloth when they were first becoming a thing, but they became improved very, very quickly. So even though William Lee himself did not get to profit very much off the invention of the knitting machine, I think he tried to take it over to America it flopped. He passed away without it being a big success. But people who helped him brought it back over to Britain, and they improved the design of it and things like that, and basically like industrialised the process of knitting. According to an article by the Smithsonian Design Museum, a hand knitter could produce two pairs of stockings a week, whereas early knitting machines and knitting frames could work much more rapidly, producing between 25 and 30 pairs of stockings per week, which is a huge increase. And yeah, this lower price and increased demand basically set the stage for the development of what would quickly become an industry in a more modern sense mm-hmm. by the 17th century they were very very widespread these knitting machines which is still more than a hundred years before the rest of the textile industry would have the same sort of industrial revolution
0: i am so surprised by how early this is
1: yeah right absolutely it still needed a person to be involved in the process of um but it was much quicker now to produce things basically right
3: Intra- so it's more like a. am looking at like a picture and it's like, yeah, there's like a person playing it like a pipe organ.
2: Yes. Yeah.
3: This might be like a different one I'm looking at, but like, yeah, it's. Uh-huh, I, I uh-huh. and again, I keep forgetting that that's, that's what a machine means back then, you know, yeah. it, they were less autonomous than mm-hmm, they are mm-hmm. now.
1: And you can buy like knitting machines now as well still, which aren't exactly the same, but they like aren't that far off either, um, which I think is just really cool that you can still get that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, you're absolutely right. With this becoming a more industrial scale production of these items, by the time the 18th century comes around, so the 1700s, Um, knitting became mainly a skill only wealthier women had the time to actually like Ah, develop this skill ah. you know so by the time the mid 19th century comes around so called fancy knitting has become a thing, uh, and it's become one of those very stereotypical, you think of wealthier middle class ladies of this time period, sat in their rooms doing their crafts to keep themselves busy essentially. So, decorative objects such as purses and pincushions were made by these more well off, these wealthier white women to demonstrate their skills.
3: And we should have fucking of course it's it's always intersectionality it's it's never just like just men and women it's like yeah industrialization and then the upper class and then it it's all
0: of course it's more i do yeah i do wonder about like in the class sense uh Uh if you can't afford to buy Kind of commercialized. Sure, knitting, does it come back around? Does it? Does that mean that maybe some of the lower classes also still had to continue the the trade, the, yeah, the skills, 100%. so that they could
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Make so their own clothes. Yeah, that's something we're going to come on to. Um, so, talking about class differences, it was also knitting was deemed an acceptable way for gentlewomen to earn money as well. So maybe slightly lower down in the class system, but also. This is like becoming the Victorian era, which did a hell of a lot for changing how crafts are viewed. Mm. So during the Victorian era, these sorts of crafts are going from being viewed as a meaningful skill, an art form to a hobby, essentially. Mm. And this is also an era wow. of much more defined gender roles, more so than there had been in the past and much more literal separation between the sexes both on like this physical level but also in this way of viewing what was deemed appropriate for men and women at the time to be doing god
0: the- oh, so it's like you know what's appropriate for a woman to do this thing that we don't really need right now because yes. we have
1: exactly <laughs> yeah yeah
0: <laughs> you go you go off and play with your knee- knitting needles while men go and do work and, and also stuff. Yeah. something that
3: yeah. we're we're now no longer saying like another art form is representative of like genius right it's mm. like also I mean, it's that's like, oh, a- painting oh. is still a thing that's, that's like, like yes, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, the, uh, yeah, it's an art form as long as it's predominantly men that do it. Uh, yeah, that, <gasps>
1: I, that oh, I love that you form, have said this, <laughs>
0: Caroline.
3: I'm and I'm still my brain still art form versus hobby is like really blowing well, my mind. It's art like art
1: form versus the word craft like to be really really specific about it and this is something i want to come on to oh, in a little whoa. bit but like
3: god it, it's so there's an
1: article in art margins where the author carolina majuska jude specifically highlights this with the use of the phrase male art versus female craft which <laughs> yeah. i just
0: like that's when I so that. true because textile in africa especially yes, textile yeah. art is huge uh-huh, and has been uh-huh. for a very long time but in we don't view that in a lot of ways, textiles, as art, using these things in art. And I wonder, and, you know, as we talk about this, I wonder if that is because it is woman's work. Uh-huh. That is so yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are two levels to this that I think are interesting. Is someone who, I really enjoy Jane Austen novels. And, and something that yeah. is an accomplished woman in this is someone who can, like, play the piano and sing and Embroider, (laughs) oh yeah, and that kind of thing. When a woman does those things, that is a hobby and a skill they learn to be accomplished. When a men, (sighs) when a man paints or or does a uh, an instrument, that is his. That is art, and he is excelling in that field. Versus women who do it every day to just be. And then there's the other level, which is the things that men never do, (laughs) that women do, like embroidery and knitting are never even considered art. Uh uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So they are considered art when a man does it, even if a woman does it. But they will never reach the same level. But if the man never does it, then they'll never be considered art, which is just like, that's such an interesting idea.
1: I have got some really lovely quotes from people who know far more about this than I do, who agree with the things that you've said Knitting obviously isn't the only example of the domestic arts or women's work. We've talked about quite a lot of them, but things like quilting, sewing, lace making have historically been referred to as women's work, much for the same sort of reasons. So the Brooklyn Museum has a lovely article about this and that says, throughout the history of art, decoration and domestic handicrafts have been regarded as women's work and as such not considered high or fine art quilting, mm. embroidery, needlework and sewing, none of these have been deemed worthy artistic equivalents to the grand mediums of painting and sculpture.
0: That's is <laughs> such a good point. And and I wonder, I mean there are some exceptions. I think of like tapestries that um yeah, there are quite famous yeah. tapestries which do incorporate that, but that those examples are pretty far and few in between. J- Caroline's just doing this topic because they want us to know that their crocheting is art.
3: <laughs> that's <laughs> historical significance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the thing the thing i keep going
3: back to is the like um you know those secretly white supremacist art accounts that pretend to be historic and they're like oh we just need to go back to when art was good where they're like we need to go back to like making statues and everyone's like yeah, yeah. And, like, uh-huh, and making paintings uh-huh. yeah and then none of them were like and also when men were, were like knitting all the time no one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: yeah bring back knitting gills that's all i'm saying i'm so down for it <laughs>
3: I'm just trying to figure out how to weaponize the male ego to bring back knitting. <laughs>
2: That's
1: what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> anyway, I have another little quote for you, which is sort of backing up some of the stuff that we were saying earlier. This is from Rosiska Parker, who did a lot of literature, a lot of writing, in especially around when second wave feminism was becoming a thing. Um, so she mm. wrote things like the 1984 book, The Subversive Stitch.
3: Oh, great. great title. She
1: said... When women paint, their work is categorised as homogeneously feminine, but it is acknowledged as art. When women embroider, it is seen not as art, but entirely as the expression of femininity. And... Crucially, is categorized as craft, Mm. which just really like hones in on what Tom was saying earlier about like this art versus uh, whatever women are doing, craft activities.
3: Man, these quotes are bangers, man. I
1: have (laughs) one more for you, which is from design historian Dr. Fiona Hackney. He said, home and hobby craft nevertheless continue to be perceived as a middle class activity, a distraction and a leisure Mm. pursuit for ladies with time and means a tendency that limits understanding of these activities which I just think is a Mm. nice little quote to round off that section
0: yeah it does make me wonder that one of the reasons why it hasn't been considered as art because it's been um you know put into this kind of very specific box where it's not allowed to be explored in and Mm. I'm sure people Mm -hmm. are out there innovating through knitting that I haven't seen but it's not widely like knitting innovation unlike in painting or music isn't
1: yeah, absolutely. out there in the world, Dr. Hackney wrote a paper called Quiet Activism and the New Amateur, the Power mm. of Home and Hobby Crafts, and she basically suggests that a lot of like the rise of consumer-friendly crafts, including kits and like ready-made designs, has mm. also potentially further diminished the status of these crafts. Yeah. Again, like further feeding into this idea that it is a craft rather than an art that should specifically be honed in on and improved upon and developed further yeah. and i just think that's a really
0: interesting that is, it is interesting I, i'm having a whole new perspective to this it's <laughs> yeah. so crazy Fantastic. Fantastic. i love
3: that you're talking about innovation I, Karen, I don't know if you're gonna mention stuff about how like i believe a lot of textile work was super important for early computer stuff <gasps> like wires and and and, and um, oh, computer I'm memory i'm not gonna
1: talk about that tom do you want to i share might do a, a whole more? topic
3: on that another time but like that was hugely important and i'll i'll, I'll jump into that another time when i you're uh, like think about i'm talking ferreting about topic that, about...
1: that one yeah, away. Interesting. for a future topic yeah, <laughs> yeah. watch this space so yeah <laughs> all of this being said we might view women's crafts and arts in this way throughout history but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was just this thing that women did and it didn't really have a whole lot of meaning you know a specific example that I'd like to talk about is in Britain specifically in like the 1800s before 1870 when married women couldn't legally own any property or claim any of their own wages. And this included women who were doing women's work that was deemed suitable for them. They still had to have their husbands present to collect wages on their behalf, basically. Mm. So yeah, even the craft they were doing was not viewed as their own, which is just makes me so mad, right? Yeah. That being said, sewing tools... Being regarded as these feminine things that were viewed as relatively low in value were among the few types of sort of these portable paraphernalia, these portable items, these little trinkets almost that women could informally bequeath, pass on to their daughters, their sisters and their friends, which mm, I think is really, really lovely. I have got a little example of what these sewing tools might have been like.
3: Caroline's sent us an image. Oh, is this a thimble? It's a thimble. This is a what little the thimble. Fuck.
0: It's yeah. gorgeous. It's gold. Yeah. It's really uh-huh. finely detailed. There's like... Uh, figures of women on it and uh like vines and ferns and some latin writing the the
3: detail scaling made me think like it was much bigger and then i had to be like oh wait
0: and it looks like this is probably made out of like gold and silver and stuff so the bequeathment of it like informally down is actually Uh of of Uh value as well which is interesting where you couldn't be as a woman you could not pass down money
1: yes um, yeah because
0: that would have to go through the the men this at least is like it's like jewelry as well right so Mm, mm -hmm, this is one mm -hmm. way to pass down wealth in a way that it wasn't necessarily controlled outside the system yeah absolutely
1: Um, the other thing that this thimble really does is communicate potentially messages between women this example is Mm. particularly sort of feminine centric the idea of this thimble in particular is it's believed to have been maybe a wedding gift so, oh, so the- is it
0: oh, cause, okay so the, the well, we should say I deliberately talked around it but uh-huh, um, uh-huh. The, the image <laughs> it's on a it is <laughs> the image on it is clearly sexual like it yes. looks like a, yeah. I guess it's a man actually I thought they were two women but it looks that like a, a man yeah a man who's got like his hand in between a woman's legs so it's trying so what you're saying Caroline it's, they're trying to convey that that what will, which will happen in the wedding night?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not only that, this message of, like, fertility and love, and I think on the other side of it, there might be some rabbits and things like that as well, just to further... But, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so this is another one that's in the VA's collection, and the V&A say about this... Bring back sexual thimbles. <laughs> yes,
0: right. Honestly, yeah, I love <laughs> it. It's a long history. One of the things I love about women's history in... Um, the secret language of fans or flowers yes. and that kind yeah. of thing uh-huh. you uh-huh. know well, yeah the, the small ways yeah. in which women try to like communicate with each other th- without uh, other people knowing is so interesting mm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or something that's so like personal to the woman who was receiving this as well of like this is something that's like actually got some practical use potentially yeah something that she's going to be sat doing <laughs> in her on her own a lot of the time as well
3: i'm like i'm like getting genuine emotional chills (laughs) like i'm
1: like like, i see this
3: Look, here's the thing i see this in the museum i go oh it's a thimble now to think like this belongs to a person Uh and uh they're conveying a thing in secret which is almost like tragic that that they can't have this painting in their room they have to keep it in the this this salacious image you know it, it has to be It has to be so small and secret. It
1: possibly was. It's not necessarily that it was kept secret as such. Sure, But it is something that was very... Uh, something more personal to them and something yeah yeah this probably would have been a woman to woman wow and and like the connotations with this of you are going to be in love you're married you're going to have children and you're going to do a lot of this crafting stuff on your own and you're gonna get get fucked yeah (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna get it girl girl.
3: (laughs) but yeah and for it to be on an item so small yeah yeah holy shit caroline
1: something so small that potentially was the only thing that this woman would have been able to pass on to her daughter because that's the other thing around women's work these crafts is that it was something that often took place at home it was often a skill that was handed down from mother to daughter. So yeah, I just think mm. it's it's really really poignant that there's this thing that is wow. going to be passed down from generation to generation of women specifically that has these messaging messages on them. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really really interesting. And like, if that's not
3: art, what the fuck is? Yeah, right. Like,
0: yeah,
1: right.
3: <laughs> what more speaks to the human soul than that? Holy shit. Uh huh.
1: So around, I if
3: you have told me at the start of this, a thimble was
1: going to get you in this way. <laughs> <It's> so...
3: <laughs> oh, Christ,
1: Christ! So around this time, the idea of using craft not only as something that brings women together and connects through the passage of these skills, but also something that could use to make a political stance, really starts to take a hold. So in the mm. 1800s. The members for the Female Society for Birmingham were involved in, I think, what might have been the first large scale uh, kind of political campaign for these white middle class women in the UK. So, and this was specifically around an early British anti-slavery campaign.
3: Wow. Which I think is,
1: yeah, absolutely. So a lot of these women were sort of working, being helpful wives, wonderful mothers, daughters, etc. And they were spending a lot of their spare time creating hand-sewn work bags, which they would then fill with anti-slavery literature. Wow. Hell yeah. And would then sell it across britain. Hell yeah. Which is just really really cool. So this is a very early example of something that I would refer to as craftivism. We'll give you a definition of that in a minute. But here is a little example of what one of these bags might have looked like.
0: It's just like a it's just it just looks like a canvas bag really. There's a yeah, there's a d- yeah. there's a nice little design on it of someone sitting under a tree. Um oh this is the anti-slavery one, right? So it's yes, a, it, it is yeah. like a black person sitting under a tree which I think would be quite radical to have that kind of art around at that right. time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to like almost be secretly making these sorts of things under the guise of being a, a typical middle-class woman who was spending their time honing their craft, learning these skills because, you know, that's what being a good woman is to be making this sort of stuff.
3: So cool. So cool.
1: Across the pond over in America looking for independence from Britain, the British decided to additionally tax textiles and other products uh, that were needed for making clothes or potentially taxing the clothes themselves Mm -hmm. so women in america women in the colonies that were there already decided that they were going to create much more homespun cloth basically so families and churches would hold spinning bees competing (laughs) to see who could create the most yarn yeah and during this time essentially because women's role as like the buyer of family goods And who was getting the stuff to clothe their children and things like that? It became such a pivotal part of this colonial resistance essentially by boycotting British fabrics. It's also
3: such a fucking, it's not even a metaphor, it's like a direct struggle of like means of production. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like, early boycotting essentially as well to contribute towards the revolution in some capacity which i think is yeah again a really really cool women example. can
0: seize the means of production yes <laughs> 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 um and then
1: another example that i want to talk I, I basically couldn't do this episode without talking
0: about women's suffrage i was literally about to say when you said craftivism the first time you said it i thought Okay, so I'm thinking in my head immediately is the sashes the suffragettes wore or something like yes, that. Yes, the... that's
1: exactly it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So yeah, women's suffrage, essentially the conclusion of first wave feminism. Uh, and these fabric banners were essential parts of the women's rights movement at this time around the world, not just here in the UK, but over in America and places like that as well. So yeah, the idea is that women were already making outfits for their children if they had to or they were already honing their skills of embroidery sewing things like that if they were in a position where you know they were middle class and things like that so essentially what they were thinking was why not use these skills that our mothers and our friends have passed down to us to advocate for our own rights in england the Artists' Suffrage League was founded in 1907, and they created essentially really clear guidelines on things like the text and the colours that they should use for these advocacy materials, in addition to also producing banners.
3: Artists' Suffrage League. I know. Fucking the rips. Yeah. So <laughs> great. The
1: Artists' Suffrage League is so cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The word artist also, yeah. right? Yes, right. Absolutely. Like, associating the word art finally with these sort of textile Mm. arts which is just wonderful
0: this is just i just want to add like a a little nugget of info into the suffrage conversation here because it's something i've been learning about recently oh yeah um the suffragettes are typically like white uh, British women and, and the suffragists almost exclusively were because there was a lot of racism within the uh-huh, movement uh-huh. there were yeah. a lot of yeah. black and Asian women fighting for women's suffrage they're just not acknowledged as part of that struggle necessarily and I think it's just something oh, to be aware of that's such a
1: good point within yeah. this whole no, thing no but good to mention Yeah, a lot of people absolutely, are kind of erased yeah. from that yeah. narrative
0: and I can I can imagine that there were also these women were also using these tools in the same way yeah, yeah absolutely
1: intersectionality baby something that was so wonderful about like looking at some of these banners as well is that they're so personalized to where you're from which town which city and things like that some of them are specifically like highlighting like women that they look up to and things which is really really cool the first record of a suffrage banner being displayed dates back to a demonstration at colston hall in bristol on the 4th of november 1880 so yeah that's first wave feminism I want to talk about second wave feminism as well because there's some back and forth around the use of crafts in some of this work. So, second wave feminism was thought to use craft quite a lot. Many artists of the period were embracing women's work and actively utilizing it in the art of the time, trying to blur yeah. those lines between what is craft and what is art. So artists like Mm. Faith Wilding and Harmony Hammond, uh, among others, were using fabric in their work to highlight and uh, essentially criticise the removal of feminine Mm. crafts from the arts. Mm. Uh, And here is one of Wilding's pieces, which was specifically crocheted. Holy shit. Oh, it's beautiful.
0: So it looks... Holy so this fuck. is this is kind of the thing I was talking about, where like yeah, that these are this is art. This absolutely one hundred percent is absolutely. art. There is uh-huh, it, uh-huh. innovation and ingenuity in it, and it kind of looks like it's like a almost like a giant spider's web. Yeah, it's hanging yeah. from the ceiling. It's white. It's kind of scary, actually. Yeah.
1: There's uh-huh. lots of uh-huh. different
0: like sizes and patterns within it. It's just, um, it's, yeah. it's quite really beautiful, actually.
1: So this specific piece of work was part of a whole series of work that was specifically put on display as artwork to get people thinking about the idea of crochet and knitting and textile works being art. Mm. Um, this wasn't the only one either. There was quite a lot of different work at the time being produced. Uh, this one is often referred to as a womb room which i just think is really fun
2: Mm,
1: (laughs) Um, so yeah it was just a whole time of these sorts of artworks being produced at a much greater rate but there's also the flip side of it with second wave feminism which is the idea of wanting to reject these stereotypically feminine
0: yeah. art
1: forms, basically, to reject mm-hmm. craft, viewing it mm-hmm. as too feminine, mm-hmm. and instead opting to participate in more stereotypically masculine hobbies. Which is f- fine. Just do what you want. Catherine Grayson of Harpy Magazine says about this, of course, rejecting embroidery perpetuates the problem, Uh, further embedding patriarchal distinctions and reinforcing the concept that the masculine is intrinsically worth more. Grayson goes Uh, on to say, what's wrong with demonstrating patience or taking pleasure in caring for the household? If we look down on the skills passed from woman to woman, who are we really fighting for?
0: that's such a yeah great quote exactly, what, exactly what i was quote. thinking without saying it very well at all
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like caroline did a bunch of good research yeah. to find the great quotes and we appreciate what? but it's it's so cool to hear these hear the, the a, a thing in your soul put into words yeah. and be like it's yes so yes yes that
1: good isn't it yeah <laughs> um so this leads us on really really nicely to third wave feminism, which is where we're currently at, and the idea of craftivism. So have either of you heard this term before?
3: I have not.
2: No, no, this is the first time I was hearing
1: it. Yeah, totally. So this term was coined in 2003 by a woman named Betsy Greer, who's a writer, editor, speaker, and maker, which I think is a lovely little uh, way to describe yourself. So Greer says that craftivism is a way of looking at life where voicing opinions through creativity makes your voice stronger, your compassion deeper, and your quest for justice more infinite. Mm. There's a lot that can be said about craftivism from the third wave feminist movement and its relation to craftivism, its anti-capitalist connotations, Mm -hmm. also the issues with this form of protest, the extortionate costs associated with doing craftivism. If you've ever bought enough yarn to make a jumper, you'll know how expensive it is. Yeah, that's
0: a good point, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. is um closed off to many many people exactly
1: yeah yeah all of this is too much to dive into in one go so i'm (laughs) gonna save modern craftivism for a future
0: miscellaneous i think that's a good idea because there's this is a so interesting.
1: <laughs> this is so interesting. There is so Holy much that can be said molly. about it. This has been a very quick, rough intro to no the history of arts and Caroline. It was
0: so much fun. I really wasn't <laughs> sure what to expect when you mentioned the topic, Likewise. but yep. actually uh-huh, the uh-huh. kind of discourse and the idea of what is art and when when women women's craft not being seen as art is so interesting. Yeah. You've done a, a wonderful job.
3: And it 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 just so clearly dovetails into so many other social issues as yeah, well like yeah, like absolutely. with class like with race it's yeah it's, it, which it, which it always always all that all that stuff always is even when it's not so clear but it uh-huh. is so clear
1: i've not even like touched on how quilting was used to bring black women together it when slavery was a thing in america um, which actually my mum wrote her undergraduate dissertation about and she only told me this earlier today and are i was fucking, like what the wh- fuck <laughs> earlier today you're like god damn it yeah, this, <laughs>
3: maybe maybe you can you can do I'm, that I'm as well going to have to see if she's got a copy previously of it on in the next <laughs> one yeah holy shit yeah um, and i and, and in indigenous cultures too
1: yeah and like oh, the video yeah,, that enjoyed, i referenced earlier did a really lovely deep dive into communities where this craft was essentially like dying out in, indigenous crafts essentially and how a lot of like aid and support and relief for these places is using craft bringing back these crafts, but also as a way to like help with, like if you're experiencing domestic abuse and things like that, like a space for women to come together to work through some of these problems whilst also reigniting this love for this craft yeah. oh she just she did such yeah, a good job on wow. it i can't express it enough holy shit um and then so, yeah.
3: cultural <laughs> stuff like the fact of the predominance of like silk in, yes! in asian countries wow. uh-huh. oh
1: there's so uh-huh. much all, to say about it's a it a huge, so Jesus yeah. Much, It's Yeah such a... it, uh yeah
0: so if you if you're listening at home and you have like some ideas about how it's been used in a certain culture <gasps> oh, or, yeah. or in, a, in a certain class or race way i uh, understand that we are very much interested it's just not necessarily within the scope of this first step
3: and and please share your, <laughs> yeah, please, yes. your stories if you have yeah, any so we've
0: got a discord <laughs> we have a discord channel we have a i made this discord oh, channel
3: yes. which you know doesn't distinguish between craft and art it's not because we're lazy and made only one channel
2: it's no, because no, we, no. Knew. No. we knew we already knew before
0: this <laughs> i know you can't hear them because zoom is cutting it out but i'm doing a drum roll okay oh okay <laughs> it's-
3: review this review comes to us oh it's been so long and it's, it's a sweet one uh this review comes from federal gal uh from turkey uh and they say a thank you message from an upcoming sociologist I'm a sociology major who's in love with how the world and mind works and listening to you guys has been my favorite part of my routine, honestly. I love my major, but miss the big part in my life that natural science covered. However, listening to you guys takes me back to high school when we would just talk about all the documentaries and fun facts we found and explain why they were so fascinating to each other, which feels like a spark of passion and love for learning everything. So Uh I want to say thank you guys for keeping that spark alive in me
0: my oh, goodness that's, wow. so, that's a very high compliment that's very sweet thank you wow wow oh my goodness
3: and thanks everyone for oh it is good to be back it's,
0: it's nice so, to so good to be back, back. It's, it's so good to be back we missed you guys thanks thanks everyone i know we've for your been patience. around kind of but having a nice pro- a proper episode again is really good it's
1: been so much yeah. fun i can't wait to
0: hear everybody's reactions to this one it should be yeah. really great do we have any plugs or shout outs
3: I want to do a quick plug. Friend of the podcast, uh, Sabrina Cruz, just dropped a video about spelling bees, (gasps) which we talked about briefly about, but this is more about the actual spelling unless about mine was an excuse to talk about samophiles. Uh, and I, I, I play, I play a little bit in it. I, I take part in her spelling bee oh. you can see how I did. And it's a great video.
0: Oh, that's exciting. Actually, that's really I can't exciting. wait to watch it.
1: And also we mentioned some of the bonus content in this episode. So it felt like a good time to share. If you want to hear Tom talking about socks in a way that you've never heard Tom talk about socks before. Go and check out some of our bonus content. So if you do want to support us in any way, that is a great place to do it as well.
3: All of this stuff is at everything.com.
0: As the student of the episode, I'm going to summarize what I have learned. I like the the phrase, the student of the episode. (gasps) (laughs) Yes, I love that. So today... We have learnt that there is a kind of disbelief that eels could possibly be (laughs) electric, that they must be battery powered or some (laughs) other strange (laughs) ethereal thing. And that our understanding of what they did has changed over time Mm. as we have learnt more about electricity and biology at the same time. It's not an intuitive thing to know the differences between these things, but we figured it out. Um, We learnt some great words like electrogenesis. Oh, yeah. And... I think ultimately we learnt that eels are big batteries which can force choke other fish with their minds.
3: (laughs) It's like, that's not a wrong sentence.
0: (laughs) We've also learnt that knitting has not always been women's work. It used to be cool. It used to be (laughs) cool, (laughs) manly stuff. And on that, they're called crafts for a strange reason because women's work has not always been considered art. It is seen as something else often because of many social factors. Yeah, started
3: (laughs) off as women's work and it's like, it's neither women's nor work, actually. Uh (laughs) Yeah, Uh It's not women's and it's
0: not work. It's it's everyone's art. And we've learned that women are seizing the means of production and have been. So join us next time (laughs) where we we'll learn about everything. Everything. Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lund, and Caroline Roper with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lund.
3: A quick side note, I couldn't fit in earlier. So... During that time when folks like Volta, another man named Galvani, uh, were experimenting with electricity and electricity in animals, their discoveries inspired a writer at the time named Mary Shelley to write a little book known as Frankenstein. Ah. So indirectly, Electric Fish gave us Frankenstein, which is one of my favorite (laughs) stories.
1: That's great. Just
3: a little bonus fact. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly
2: by you.